Today is part two of the Advent Sermon Series entitled Waiting for God. Our scripture lesson comes from 2 Peter, where the early Christians are encouraged to wait for God with patience, but not with passivity. Listen for the good news. But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, what sort of people ought to be you to be in leading lives of holiness and go- godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set ablaze and dissolved, and the elements will melt with fire? But in accordance with his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth, where righteousness is at home. Therefore, beloved, while you are waiting for these things, strive to be found by him at peace, without spot or blemish, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Today, we lit the second candle on the Advent wreath, the candle of peace. And we celebrate in this season the arrival of the Prince of Peace, born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And yet we look around the world and we don't see peace. Jesus preached near the end of his ministry, peace I live with you, leave with you, my peace I give to you, parting words, and yet we look around and we don't always see this peace. The president of the university where I earned a master's degree issued a statement this week. The headline caught my eye. He said, we on the university community pledge to stand against hatred. And I thought, Well, that doesn't seem very bold. Why don't we work for peace? Can't we be those people who do more than stand against hatred? Well, we all know that the president was responding to the tensions that have erupted on college campuses throughout the land in recent weeks in response to the military action between Hamas and Israel. Can we do more than stand against hatred? I have a friend whose son is a sophomore in college this year. He's Jewish, and he is the president of the Jewish Students Association on campus. He grew up partly in the United States, born in Arizona, but he has also spent several years of his education living in Israel and Palestine. And when the war broke out in October, he felt immediately compelled to organize a prayer vigil to pray for peace, but he told his mom the prayer vigil would be a closed meeting only for Jewish students already in the group. She pushed him a little bit. She said, I think there are other students who are hurting. Maybe it could be a public meeting to pray for peace. He was afraid. He knew that there was some anti-Semitism going on in different college campuses, but at the end of the day, he decided to open it up and any student would be invited to come to pray for peace. At the peace vigil, he read a prayer that he had pulled from a, a rabbi in the United States, and he took that prayer and modified it. And when it said, we pray for the victims in Israel, he added one little phrase, and we pray for the victims in Palestine. 
and at the end of the prayer vigil, a fellow student came up to him, one he had never met before, and the student said, thank you for that line in the prayer, praying not only for the Israelis who have been hurt, but also for the Palestinians who have lost their lives. He said, my mother is Palestinian, and my father is Israeli, and that's the only prayer I've ever heard in my life that included my whole family. This month, the month of December, is the time when we decorate the church, we decorate our homes, we purchase gifts, we prepare for our family gatherings, and in all of this, we pray for peace. But we are so mindful that even as the city and the church look so beautiful, peace has not yet fully arrived. Scholars remind us that the word for peace found in the Bible means more than the absence of war. The word in Hebrew is shalom, which means a deep sense of completeness, of wholeness. It means, according to one author, having everything you need to be holy and happily yourself. Can any of us really say that? Years ago, I officiated a wedding across the street in Combs Chapel. The groom was Christian, the bride was Hindu. They had the sweetest, most beautiful relationship, but every time we got together to plan the wedding, I saw in their faces heartbreak. I felt the heartbreak with them because the bride's parents had announced that they would not be attending this wedding because it was just abhorrent to them that their daughter, a Hindu, was marrying a Christian. I will never forget the look on the bride's face when hours before the wedding, she learned that her mom and dad and her two sisters were on a plane from Baltimore, Baltimore and that they would indeed be at the wedding. Shalom, peace. Their love for their daughter was stronger than their need to be right. This week at my home church in Fort Worth, Texas, there will be a funeral. It will be unlike any funeral I have ever attended. I hope unlike any funeral you have ever attended. The chair of the board of elders of the congregation was driving in a car with his wife and his two children on the night before Thanksgiving on the way to grandmother's house. A driver crossed over the double line of the median and hit them head on the 44-year-old father and his nine and 12-year-old children died instantly. The mom was critically injured and she lived. How can the 3,000 people anticipated at this funeral this week know any sense of peace in the midst of such tragedy? Today's scripture voices the longing of the human race for peace, and it voices our faithful community's despair, that God's peace is not yet fully and completely in our midst. Now, in the first years after Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, the early Christians were taught by the Christian leaders that this one whom they had loved named Jesus was coming back. And soon, they just needed to wait to hold on. But by the time today's scripture lesson is written, that letter called Second Peter 
a hundred years have passed and they are so upset because the Prince of Peace has not yet come. And they begin to doubt their whole faith. Can this God they had loved still be trusted? What about us? What are we waiting for during this season of Advent? If God were fully present in your life, what would be unfolding at this very moment? If God was fully present in this congregation, what would be unfolding at this present moment? During Advent, we do more than look back and remember that a long time ago Jesus was born into this world. During Advent, we name that the same God who came still comes among us. God is already here, and yet God is not yet fully and completely here. And so the passage from Peter challenges us to be people who wait, to wait for the fullness of God to be revealed. The letter asks us what we might do while we wait. And this is the part of the letter I love. It says, we should strive to be found at peace. What are each of us doing right now to strive for peace? Are we living lives of peacefulness? Do we feel an inner sense of peace within our own hearts? Do we have peace within our family relationships? Do we have peace and justice in Kansas City and around the United States and around the globe? And the letter gives us a very pointed question. Sometimes we say, ah, oh, scripture, it doesn't make sense. We can't really follow it. And then we come across a line that we know crystal clear what it means. And here is one of them from today's text. What sort of person ought you to be? It reminds me of what Jimmy Carter said once. He said, you should live every day, not as if that day will be your last, but as if one day will be your last. Are we living lives of peace and wholeness, internally at peace, at peace with those people around us? But what is most startling about this scripture passage is the defense that is given about why Jesus has not yet fully shown up. Why hasn't Jesus come back, they ask their teachers. And the letter says, because God is patient. It's not that God is slow, says the letter, but rather that God's compassion is so deep that God is waiting for humanity. The real root of our waiting is God's waiting. God waits for us to turn and fall in love with God and live lives that are worthy of being lived. God waits for humanity to be saved and embraced by God's overflowing love. The invitation has been issued, God waits. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so when we practice peace, we practice waiting, we practice mirroring the boundless love of God that is so incredibly patient. Now, I read this line recently. It, it's one of those lines that just jumped off the page at me. It was in a book called Christ is Time. It said, God chooses to disclose God's nature and character as Jesus Christ. It's as if when God takes time for humanity, God sets up the appointment on the calendar as Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ is God's appointment to the world, God speaking to us. We wait, not because we are patient, but because God is so incredibly patient and generous and loving. We wait then for God by loving one another, by caring for one another, by practicing patience with one another. This is what leads to peace. Frederick Buechner reminds us that for Jesus, peace did not mean the absence of struggle. Read the Bible, Jesus is struggling on almost every page. But peace for Jesus was the presence of love in the midst, the confidence that God's love was with them. In her book on Advent, Fleming Rutledge tells a story. It's a true story. It happened in the late 90s. Picture a tiny residential street with only about a dozen houses. The street ends in a cul-de-sac. It's in suburban America. Each of the households is preparing for Christmas. There are the lights on the doorways. There are Santas in the yard. There are trees in the window. But one home on the block is a family preparing for Hanukkah, and they have a menorah in their front living room window. Late one night, someone smashes the window, grabs the menorah, and draws a swastika on the front lawn of the house. Oh, and run some errands, do a little shopping, and that night, when the sun sets, every single house on the block has a menorah in the window. If Jesus had come, this little block would have been found at peace, living in solidarity and love with one another. Our striving for peace mirrors God's deep compassion and patience with humanity. And by some mystery, when we are able to practice that peace with one another, we begin to experience that inner peace inside as we reveal this amazing love of God already present. What remains a mystery to me, I, I can't quite figure it out, maybe you can, is why in some moments you and I are able to strive for peace, to be found at peace, and at other times, we just can't do it. Take, for instance, what is now known as the Christmas truce of 1914. Maybe you remember that in 1914, young men across Europe suited up for battle, dug trenches, took up arms, and most of them, when they went off to battle, thought that this was a regional skirmish that would end by summer's end, but definitely they would all be home before Christmas. But the skirmish became what we now know as World War I, where 25 million were wounded or killed. It was a brutal war, and a few years ago, a story came out that some said might have been a myth, but since that time, scholars from the Imperial Museum in London and historians at Yale University and our own curators here at the World War I Museum in Kansas City have found documents, letters from soldiers published in newspapers that corroborate this story. In 1914, the British and the German troops were lined up on the Western Front. They were suffering in the cold, the cruel humanity, inhumanity of war had caused them to grow so weary and become so homesick. And on Christmas Eve, 
in their bunkers, the Germans began singing. Silent night, holy night. And the British responded, the first Noel, the angels did say. And the next morning, when the sun rose on Christmas Day, they came out into the area called the no man's land that was littered with ammunition, that was filled with the spilled blood of their comrades. And they came out and they shook hands and they embraced one another and they played soccer together and they exchanged gifts, wooden boxes filled with sweets, brass boxes filled with tobacco, bottles of schnapps and beer and sausages made back at home and sent to the front lines. The Christmas truce of 1914 was quickly squelched by the higher-ups in the chain of command. We cannot have this kind of behavior. How will they shoot one another the next day? And indeed, they could not. Scholars have debated if this happened in one place or a dozen places or all the way along the Western Front, and most agree that now it probably only happened in just a few places. And that's what I keep wondering. What prompted some of them to step out in peace and others to remain hidden in the bunkers? <laughs>